Welcome to Farscape Friday, episode 22. We'll be discussing the Farscape episode, Family Ties. I'm Kay, here with my co-host Taz. Hello, everyone. Let's get started. Welcome back. Here's a quick summary of Family Ties. After Rigel steals a pod and heads straight towards a command carrier, the crew is left with an increasingly short list of options for escape. They decide to bomb the command carrier and attempt to run for it, only to have that plan shattered when Kreis switches sides and becomes their ally. As the clock ticks down, the crew decides on a dangerous plan that might cause all of their deaths. Okay, so I lied earlier when I said that other episodes were better. This is the best episode of season one. Having watched it again, it is incredible. So I usually don't think of this episode in isolation because it's so clearly part of this, basically this five-part end-of-the-season arc. But it really is by itself amazing, and it brings together so many things and so many feelings for each of the relationships that have built over the course of the season, and all of them get a little moment to shine. And I think that's why I love this episode so very much. From the title, you can understand that family is a huge theme. And it's not just about the found family they've made here, though that's certainly a huge part of it, but it also folds in the real families too, and I really like that aspect of it. So they have their hopes and their fears about missing the people who aren't there as much as about their hopes and fears of with each other about what's going on with them being in this really dire situation with the command carrier out there looking for them, and they don't really have any, very many options for escape. So we hear about John and his father, Aaron and her parents, Dargo and his wife and son, Grace and his brother, Zan is the one who kind of brings up that they are a new family, which John agrees with. And throughout the, throughout the whole plot of this episode, we get to see these really, really wonderful one-on-one scenes between just about everybody. And I teared up so many times, I'm not going <laughs> to lie, because it's such an emotional episode and it's incredibly moving. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that this episode is emotionally very well-deserved. I think that kind of the... The really the only plot in this episode you could probably summarize in like 10 minutes. We could probably sit here and just, you know, and tell you what happened in, in a really short amount of time. <laughs> and that's because the episode spends the other 40 minutes just really dealing with the emotions involved in making a decision that will probably end up in your death. Because part of the reason these characters are all saying goodbye is because the plan really clearly involves if not all of them, at least a lot of them dying. And I don't think anybody is under Mm -hmm. any impression that they're going to get out of this clean and clear. Not at all. Yeah. And that's, that was why last episode I kind of asked, like, I wondered if, I I wondered if they knew they were going to have a season two. And I assume they did because they didn't, start tearing down sets or anything you know (laughs) but at the same time this this episode it really feels like it could have been a series finale and it would have been a very satisfying one Mm -hmm. yeah I agree with that you really get this sense between so many of the conversations between characters that they do think they're going into their death and it's upsetting it's like upsetting for the ones going into it because Dargo and Crichton for instance are the ones who volunteer to do a suicide run first the plan is to take a basically explosives that they cobble together that Zan can cobble together into an explosive payload and crash it into the command carrier so that would give Moya and whoever else is on Moya a chance to escape they find out that plan's not going to work we'll get into that more more later and they come up with another one but the whole, the whole premise of the plot is someone has to die to save everybody else or someone is very likely to die to save everyone else. And you can, you can see that toll on everybody as they, as they talk to each other about putting this plan together. Yeah, so let's talk about the plot for a few minutes so that we can kind of get into the nice, meaty, emotional stuff that I think both you yeah, and I prefer. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. So the episode starts with Rigel having stolen a pod and driving it straight towards a command carrier and everybody tries to talk him out of it and even pilot is trying to be very political like he keeps calling Rigel your eminence he's like your eminence please return and you can tell that's a little bit calculated to try and play to Rigel's pride but so Rigel takes the ship to the command carrier and they don't really know why but they assume they fear yeah (laughs) they they can guess they can guess why and that means that Although they've been hiding in this asteroid field 
with Rigel going to tell Scorpius where their location is, they have a very short window of freedom left and they have to make a quick decision. Yeah. So John suggests let's drive a pod filled with explosives straight into the command carrier, blow it up, and then we can escape in the confusion. Yeah. So Rigel is negotiating on the command carrier for, to get that plan going. Meanwhile, on Moya, Zan um, puts together some explosive, basically a catalyst to go with some metal shavings that are just on Moya naturally to create basically a bomb payload. And while Rigel is negotiating for his freedom with Scorpius and Kreis, Kreis comes to him in private and says, hey, as soon as Crichton is captured, you're going to be executed so we got to get out of here. And so actually ends up bringing Crace back over to Moya to escape Scorpius. And through hold that, we find out that Crace and even Aaron, when he, when he forces the issue, doesn't think that their plan's going to work. So they have to come up with a new plan. Because attacking the command carrier, they would just get shot out of the sky way too soon. So then Dargo comes up with the plan of... Because apparently they're still fairly close to the, to the um, gamut base. So... Dargo comes up with the plan of loading up the explosives that now they already have, putting them on the pod and then sending it towards the gamut base. And then Chris, of course, shoots that plan down and he's like, no, they would just destroy that ship too. And then he and Chris also says that Scorpius would never give up John in favor of the gamut base, that he's going to choose John over the gamut base every single time. So then John realizes that the only way they can get Scorpius to move the command carrier so Moya and her offspring can escape is if he is on the pod loaded with explosives heading towards the gamut base. Because while he's on the pod, Scorpius won't shoot the pod and Scorpius will chase the pod. And it becomes this really neat kind of game of cat and mouse and chess. And last episode, we kind of talked about how Scorpius was playing chess with Crace and Crace was playing you know, violent, yeah, like wrestling match with Scorpius. <laughs> but here, this is Scorpius playing chess with John. And yeah. I think that that's a more evenly matched pair. So that's the plan they end up going with. So as you can see, like the plot itself is short. <laughs> yeah, it's fairly straightforward. And it's, it doesn't take up that much time. I mean, in these conversations, you see little bits of it being, you know, pulled together as they plan and whatnot. But by and large, the meat of this episode is about Moya's crew working together to put this plan in motion and also acknowledging their feelings for each other because they realize that this plan is so risky. It's such an impossible achievement to do that they would possibly get away and live through this, that they're, they're confronting that and their own mortality and saying how much they mean to each other and how the relationships have changed over time. And it's, that's why this is such a powerful episode is that it really lets the characters react and have those relationships with each other because so many shows do not do that. I mean, there's an action-packed finale and it's all action and then there's like two seconds of character bits and it's just so unsatisfying. But here's like a smorgasbord of emotions <laughs> and it's just so wonderful. You know, I think the more we are, we're talking about this, the more I like the episode because I think that initially after I watched this, I was kind of like, by the 10th goodbye, I was like, oh my God, stop <laughs> saying goodbye. Where is the plot? But the more we talk about it, the more I really do think that we've seen this crew that mostly interacts well during action. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? It seems like in their downtime is when they have time to really get on each other's yeah. nerves. So it actually really is very satisfying to have an episode where it is during their downtime that they are interacting well together and where we get to see that it, that these aren't friends of convenience mm -hmm. you know these aren't your work friends where like you wouldn't talk to them if you didn't spend eight hours right. a day together right do you know what i mean this is the chosen family that each of these people has really formed yeah well let's, let's play that first clip where zan brings that up she's talking with john as they're developing the explosives john are you sure there's no other way Oh, yeah. Ah, the tools of the chief anarchist. John. I've made new family here, surrounded by all of you. Now I sense it's coming to an end. Well, it's a Jerry Springer kind of family. But for what it's worth, Sam, you are family. 
So two things. My first reaction to that is is I love that that big noise you heard is the the catalysts reacting and they're to test the explosive and it works and that Zan is cackling in the background afterwards. I just love that she's a little bit of a pyromaniac, explosive maniac. Yeah, I mean, that's a nice through line for Zan, you know, from episode one where she's like, well, I was I'm a little bit of an anarchist. And then we learn that she actually is really good at explosives. And then here she is. She is their chief bomb yeah, maker. Yeah, Zan, who, who is the, the peaceful priest who who is their basically their doctor. But no, she, her real her real love is explosives. But I love I love both her comment that she has made family here and John's reply which is like a jerry springer family you know i'm sure everyone listening knows jerry springer but just in case you don't there's this what daytime tv live action show where jerry springer would host and bring on dysfunctional families and have them basically fight in the audience everyone mocked it but everyone watched it but his comment that they are this kind of dysfunctional family that's come together but nevertheless is still family I really like that notion of that despite all their differences, despite all their conflict, despite all the things they've already done to each other, and even with what Rigel has done to them here, um, by betraying them and going to the command carrier, there's still that those bonds that can't be broken that have already formed between them. Mm-hmm. Well, and speaking of what Rigel did to them, so Rigel starts off the, the episode with a betrayal, but as soon as he gets to the command carrier... He and Scorpius engage in in this very political back and forth where Scorpius is, and again, this is Scorpius the tactician, Scorpius the thoughtful, you know, the thoughtful opponent. It's, it's interesting, okay, because the last time we saw Scorpius take someone on was Crace, and he became like this big villain, this violent person who was capable of extreme strength, right? And then here with Rigel, he's back to the Scorpius that we, you know, first know and love. The Scorpius who is smart, who's thinking eight steps ahead, who has a plan F, you know. (laughs) Hardison dies in plan F. (laughs) And it's interesting to me because I think in a lot of shows what they tend to do is once you have the villain show that that other side of themselves, the violent side, that tends to be the fallback. You know, they go from being like a, they go from being like a super classy villain to like a villain that now all the time is using violence 100% of the time. And that's not who Scorpius is. Like that, that one off is, it it now goes back to being his trump card. Yeah. He goes back to, to playing, playing the diplomatic game. The, you know, he's still in a position of power and he doesn't shy away from it. He does threaten Rigel and say, Hey, I can take you back to the Aurora chair and torture you. But he does it in this very, you know, his voice is still high. He's doing it from a position of of power and not as a barbarism, but as, hey, this is one thing I can do to you in my arsenal if you don't cooperate with me. Here are some other things. Mm -hmm. Do you think that Rigel actually went there to betray them? Yes, I think he did. Because Rigel is a survivor and he will do anything to survive. And he even brings that up, you know later on when he's talking to Zan about it, you know, I was the original person who got us out. This is, and he even admits full out to her, like, I, you bet your blue ass is what he said when she asked him, when she says you went to, to sell us out. And I think he's scared. Like he doesn't, he doesn't say that he's scared, of course, when he's with Scorpius and Crace because he is confronting them. He has to do that from a position of, of strength and position of power. So he fronts that he's not scared, but I think he really is terrified inside. And because Rigel, Rigel does have that soft, gooey center to him that does care. And you see that later on when he's talking with John and he feels bad about selling them out. But I think he does it out of fear mm-hmm. and his need for survival because he doesn't see a way out and he doesn't trust everyone else to get him out of it either because he has major trust issues, which can't blame him. He was a prisoner for 200 cycles. So, yeah, I think he did go to sell them out. But one interesting thing from his conversation with Scorpius is... Scorpius thinks he's lying about why he's there. And I'm not sure what that is about, if that's some of his indecision or or what. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I do think that Rigel definitely stretched the information that he had to a very clear breaking point. Because I agree, I think that Rigel is the original survivor. 
the entire series of Farscape wouldn't have happened if Rigel hadn't been so darn good at manipulating situations, at surviving, at looking at people, seeing weakness, at looking at people and seeing what can I buy, what can I get? You know, because they kind of make fun of him earlier in the series where they're like, you got us, you know, stale food food cues, wah, wah, wah. And I'm kind of like, (laughs) yeah, but what did you have to trade for that? Like, you guys don't really have anything. So he probably got you stale food cubes in exchange for, like, nothing. Or, like, something that you guys, that was trash to you guys, you know? So I think maybe what Scorpius is picking up on is, like, maybe that indecision, maybe that gooey underbelly of Rigel kind of getting there and being like, I'm going to do this, I'm a survivor. And then he gets there and he's like, when I give them this information, my family is dead. Or also Scorpius is just picking up on the fact that Rigel only has a single piece of information. Rigel knows where the ship is. And Rigel manages to stretch (laughs) the knowledge of where the ship is into like several meals, (laughs) a nap, a bath in what looks like very expensive oil or very expensive (laughs) milk or something like that, you know, and his own freedom. Because he, his, his, now his deal with Scorpius is like, well, I'm not going to give you the information until I'm on my own ship and I'm halfway across the galaxy from this. You know, I'm, I'm super far away. So he kind of is, I think that maybe what Scorpius is picking up on is that Rigel knows that the hand he has Mm -hmm. is very, very weak, but Rigel is playing it like he's got a full house. I like that interpretation of it too. Yeah. When Rigel does go back to Moya, he does feel guilty about it. And you can, you can see that in the conversation he has with John. This one's one of the later, later one-on-one conversations when John is getting ready to go with Dargo in the pod. And John says, hey, you can have all my possessions. So I'm going to play that conversation between them so we can talk about it, because I really like that scene a lot. You're not joking. I can have your possessions. I die and you don't? Yeah, have at it. Why? Well, you're a material kind of guy, Rigel. Have some material. What does that mean? It means, Sparky, that you're a soulless bastard. I am not. Hey, who knows? Maybe you'll get lucky. We'll all die and you can have all our stuff. That's not fair. Sparky, Spanky, Fluffy, Buckwheat the 16th. You tried to sell us out. But I didn't, did I? They weren't buying, were they? (sighs) No. And I became convinced that after I turned you in, I would be next. Mm. Now, how does that taste in your mouth? Look, I I know I can be selfish, but given a chance, I can usually... Do what? Do the right thing? Yes. Nigel, I figure the right thing starts at the beginning of the day. Not after you've been caught. The thing that gets me when I listen to that conversation is when Rigel says, that's not fair, accusing me of being soulless and only wanting material things and not caring about anybody else. That's not fair because he feels like he does care. But his actions to the rest of the crew, of course, how do they interpret that? I mean, obviously, they're hurt by his betrayal because it risks all of their lives. And he was ready to turn John in. And that's what John's reacting to. But yet, Rigel still feels those connections to everybody, even though he's willing to break them for his own survival. Mm-hmm. Do you think Rigel would do something similar again? I don't know. I don't know. Because through this episode, those ties become stronger. And kind of going back to that, that Jerry Springer family thing, John gives him a kiss on the head at the end, right? And to me, that feels like the forgiveness that you give that awful uncle in your family or the strange brother or something like that, where, yes, he did this terrible thing to them, but they're accepting him back because he is family. Mm. That's the way I like to think about it. (laughs) Yeah, and that makes sense because it is very much about forgiveness. Like, John is challenging him and John is kind of pointing out that, like, you don't get to be like, oh, I'm a good person. 
after you yeah. get caught doing a bad thing. But I think that John also sees Rigel just emotionally as a child. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Because Rigel has never, in his entire life, Rigel has never cared about anybody or anybody else's well-being. Because his well-being has always been put first right. by everybody. He was royalty. He was a dominar. So that means that everybody else looked at him and he was their priority. And I think that when that's true, when you are everybody's priority, including your wives, including your offspring, because I think when you're married to royalty, then it's not an equal marriage. And especially with the arrogance that we see from Rigel even now after being a prisoner and being degraded for 200 cycles, I mean, he was able to build himself back up. I mean, he had possessions in his cell. He was able to get the codes. He was able to manipulate the situation. And you see that he still thinks of himself in those terms. He might have a little bit more wisdom than he would otherwise, but yeah, it's like he missed a major segment of growing up, and mm-hmm. that's what John is reacting to, and it colors how John sees him because he has this huge blind spot about other people and their feelings, and well, maybe not so much about their feelings, but his regard for their feelings. Does that make sense? Because mm-hmm. I, I, I feel like Rigel can read people well enough, but he, how he chooses to act on that is still a, a giant step away from how the others and most people would, mm-hmm. and how he chooses to prioritize that. Because I think you're right when he's saying, "That's not fair." I I do care about you guys but then at the same time you're like you care about them Rigel but you were gonna yeah. you were gonna watch them all that die. caring didn't mean anything yeah yeah I totally called the in my notes I was like he gives him like a <laughs> godfather a kiss on the head yeah you know like it was it felt very like Scorsese. yeah yeah <laughs> So Rigel, after having been given all these things and being on the command carrier, Crace essentially comes to him and says, hey, listen, I know you think you're getting away from this, Rigel, <laughs> but here's your death order. Here is the order that Scorpius has already written out that says that once you give us the information, you're dead. And there are a couple of things I want to ask. And one is a technical okay. question. Whose heads are in Kreis's quarters? Because we talked about Kreis having physical trophies of his opponents, and they're all Hynerian. Mm-hmm. There's like There's three like two or three of them. Yeah. Heads. Yeah. Yeah, in his room, and I'm like, whose are they? I don't know. I would say generals, maybe, because you know the Hynerian Empire is vast and wide, and I'm sure not only the Hynerian homeworld, which is where Rigel was deposed over 200 cycles ago, but I'm sure they have subsidiary homeworld or worlds that they are under Hynerian control, and maybe there's conflict there that he, you know, had to go and settle and lopped off the heads of whoever the viceroy was there. I don't know if Hynerians have viceroys. Mm. I just invented that. Yeah. But you know, that's what I would think. As an empire that big, and especially one, I mean, theoretically, it's under Bishan's control, which is loyal to the peacekeepers, but that's a big empire. Yeah, or maybe it was just generals, or you're right, somebody, some other powerful figure that stayed loyal to Rigel after yeah. the coup. Oh, that would be, you know, because <laughs> it would be really creepy as if it was people that Rigel knew. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. I don't think that's the case necessarily because of the time difference, but you never know. Yeah, actually, I don't know. Cause, cause, yeah, because initially I was thinking, well, maybe it was people that they killed before Rigel was deposed. But then I was realizing, I was like, no, because I think Sebations live shorter lives than Hynerians. Yeah, they're still long-lived, but they're not as long as Hynerians. Yeah, anyway. Or maybe it was just people that, <laughs> you know, Rigel's cousin needed killed. <laughs> yeah. I have a question for you yeah, about yeah. that scene. We only have Crace's word that that is the orders with Scorpius is intentions on it. How do we know that that is actually what Scorpius means and it's not just Crace manipulating the situation? Mm. I have I have dueling feelings on this. My first feeling is that I think that to a certain level, Scorpius kind of sees Rigel as an intellectual equal. And Scorpius isn't really the type to randomly kill people that he enjoys playing with, um, as noted by John. <laughs> <laughs> So my one feeling is, I don't know that Scorpius really cared enough to kill Rigel. But my other feeling is that I think that this episode, we're finally seeing Crace become the leader he was before (laughs) the premiere episode of Farscape. Yeah. Because you can see what he does here is he makes a really strategic decision. When he gets back to Moya, he's acting really intelligently. And we can see that even Aaron respects his his military prowess even she respects Mm -hmm. his kind of his military insights so we are kind of seeing him get out from under the shadow of his brother's death and become more of who the intelligent military officer that became commander 
Right. You have to have some smarts to get that rank, even in the peacekeepers. Yeah. So my feeling is I could see it as a very strategic move on Crace's part. Also because I don't think Crace has any power anymore to even have access to those, that to that information. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. I think that yeah. so the, I think that Scorpius has very effectively deposed him. And I think <laughs> that um I, I just don't think Crace would have had access to that information. Or alternately, because we do find out that Scorpius letting Crace go to Moya was a strategic decision on his part. Or Scorpius gave him that information on purpose. And I think that that's mm-hmm. actually more likely, is that yeah. Scorpius was kind of like, oh, and by the way, here on my desk <laughs> is the order to have Rigel killed. And here's the order to have you killed. Yeah. Or, or with that being the implicit information. I could definitely see that for Scorpius. I like that interpretation because it lends itself to the chess master interpretation of his character, where he's thinking a couple steps ahead and manipulating other people into doing what he wants them to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> In your leverage joke earlier, like, Scorpius is the Nate Ford of the Farscape universe. <laughs> <laughs> he totally is. <laughs> So, yeah, so Crace kind of comes to him and he's like, hey, we're both going to die. Let's not die. So Rigel just has the best. Oh, it's so it's such a wonderful scene. So Rigel brings the pod back. Granted, Moya doesn't have weapons. There's no real way Moya could like fire on the pod or anything like that. Yeah. So they let it back on. And then Rigel comes out and Aaron's like, get down on the floor now. And everybody's really mad at him. And Rigel's like... Hell no, I'm not getting down on the floor because then I would miss all your faces at what's about to happen. <laughs> and, and then enter Crace. Enter Crace. <laughs> it's good. Yeah, it's it is good. It is good. So Crace shows up, and we have a moment that I don't I don't really know we'd been asking for because, like I said, now Scorpius has very effectively become the primary villain of Farscape. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's. It's an interesting moment in between John and Crace, and it's after they've put Crace in a cell, and in he and John interact for a moment. So I'd like to play that right now. How are you doing? Why would you ask? I look at you, and I get homesick. I'm desperate for human male-to-male conversation, and I figure Cars, football, they're out of the question. You think it's an accident? Our species are so much alike. You know the answer to that? No. It's one of the mysteries I would miss solving. Yeah. Kind of makes you feel your mortality, doesn't it? Being in there. That's what it's like for us. Every day. Every hour, every minute, every second with you riding our asses. I understand you didn't mean to kill my brother. I understand you didn't mean to kill my brother. Oh, crazy. What could everybody's lives have been like if you'd realized that 20 episodes ago? Yeah, and the conversation continues where he explains a little bit more like, you know, it was an accident and I lost sight of all this stuff. And it's just this incredible admittance of him being on the wrong side of that assumption, that conversation of setting in motion this huge chain of events that has led Crace to the brink of execution. The other thing about this conversation that is, it's John sitting outside the cell on the floor, Crace inside the cell behind bars, and John has his pulse pistol with him. He has had it all episode. Again, this new John that is very much more familiar with violence and willing to shoot people. And John's crying as he says this. This is like the single tear down his face kind of thing where he's it's not his voice, but it's there on the surface. And it's just he's so raw because he's finally come face to face with Crace in person. It's not in Maldus's weird thing where they're trying to kill each other. But it's just the two of them finally confronting each other at the end of it all. And the rawness of John and how much he misses his home 
and other men to talk with and human men, you know, what kind of conversations he wants to have that's in that first part. And it's just the emptiness that he's going through, or I don't know if emptiness is the right word, but the loneliness is probably the better way to put it. The loneliness that he has, it's Crace that he's he's confessing this all to. I just find that really interesting. Yeah, well, because Crace is the one that looks physically human. And I think you're right about it being loneliness because John, this whole episode is confronting his own mortality. And he's confronting the idea that as much as Crace was after him and as much as Crace kind of, you know, as, as he alludes to, Crace put them in a cell and that cell just got smaller and smaller and smaller every day. And yet now John has a villain because of Crace. He has an enemy that is chasing after him and will not let him go. That if Crace was relentless, Scorpius is is the incoming tide. Scorpius will not be stopped. And there's very little yes. John can do. Because unlike Crace, where John kind of always thought that if I can just get through to him and make him realize I didn't kill his brother on purpose, everything will be fine. Scorpius doesn't have that off switch. Yeah. And John's already seen through his being tortured in the Aurora chair, Scorpius's single-mindedness about the wormhole tech and what he is willing to do and how terrifying he is doing it because he's perfectly polite. It's just he's going to rip you to shreds in the process to get what he wants. Yeah. I talked a little bit earlier about this episode being like the redemption of Krace almost. And that's really what I feel like is going on here. Because if, if Krace kind of had become the cardboard cutout of a villain... You know, if he kind of felt like, you know, one of those like villains in like a Western where it's like, he's the oil baron and he's here to destroy <laughs> your time, you know, like that kind of like that kind of cartoonishness, you yeah. know, this, this episode does a really solid job of redeeming him because it shows us his military acumen. It shows us that he at least had the self-awareness to begin realizing that it wasn't even about his brother's death that it really was just about his own pride. Mm -hmm. And I think also kind of he alludes to the fact that it was about the fact that he felt so helpless in the face of his brother's death. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that helplessness being a huge driver for needing the revenge. Mm -hmm. So John and Chris just have that like really solid moment. And I think it kind of puts a cap on season one and lets us kind of start with Chris as a very gray character mm -hmm. in terms of morality, but at least he's not that kind of like ridiculous, you know, like <laughs> the chewing the scenery over the top, single-minded, one-dimensional villain. Yeah, this yeah. this is where he gets, I mean, we started to see some of that in the hidden memory with going back to him being put in the chair and his conversation with Aaron, but here is the really, the, the true turning point for him in terms of where his character is going to go. Mm -hmm. So I think the rest of the episode, let's see, I, did we miss any other like major plot stuff? After this scene is when Craze ends up discussing with the crew their plan to run into the command carrier and then Dargo's the one who comes up with the idea to hit the gamut base mm -hmm. and then they follow through on that. So I think we hit yeah. the plot stuff. I'm going to talk about another really mini plot arc that's going on in this episode, and that is Aaron. Mm. We've mentioned before that Aaron by far has like the really much more solid, coherent character arc throughout the whole, pretty much the whole series of Farscape, but definitely in season one. Yeah. And in this episode and in the last one, it introduced kind of this very, the smaller one, which is that when Pilot asked her to go aboard the offspring and kind of calm it down and get it to stop powering so that they, the command carrier couldn't find them, Pilot ends the episode by asking Aaron to name the offspring. He says, Moya wants you to name it. And when you're given the right to name something, there, I, I really do think that it's a very familial thing. You know, yeah. like it's not something that you just, you know, you ask a friend to do. You ask a friend who is essentially who feels like a sister to do. And that's kind of the feeling you get from Erin this episode is that she's really confronting her own biological family. And so she actually ends up talking to John because he's he's trying to record a message in a bottle for his father. And Erin ends up telling him this really interesting story about her own biological family. When I was very young one night, a soldier appeared over my bunk, battle-hardened, scarred. Cool. Your father. My mother. She told me that I wasn't merely an accident or a genetic birthing to fill the ranks, that 
She and a male that she had cared about had chosen to yield a life. Mine. What about your father? I know even less. Well. Leave him a message. You never know. They might get it. So Erin tells, tells John the story of when her mother came to visit her as a child. Her parents chose to have her, to express their love through having a child. And I think what I love about that little bit is like, it's just this one scrap of memory. She's only seen her mother. She knows barely anything about her father at all, even less. And that's something she's had to hold on to. Even if she must have like denied it or thought it was a dream or whatever, she still has that little thing. And the juxtaposition here is with John, who is talking on the recorder to his father, trying to send him a message, and he's having trouble coming up with the words. And she knows how close the relationship John has with his father, and she's seen it kind of in a human reaction with the alien who's playing John's father. So she sees that relationship and realizing how it could have been. And then she has Moya, who clearly loves her baby and has that wanting to have that child and, and that specialness of even though it was a forced pregnancy for Moya, there is still a lot of love wrapped up in it. And so you kind of see all that in these what three different family situations that are coming about in this conversation. Mm-hmm. I think she really does see herself a lot in the offspring because the child is a product of the peacekeeper and the child is this violent covered in weapons creature that is very different from its mother. And I think that Aaron um, really does kind of empathize with that because on a fundamental level, this child is her. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Bred for war. Bred for war. Yeah, exactly. And, and kind of, even though at this point the offspring is, is connected to Moya, like they're talking, there is that kind of distance where I think that everybody knows that at a certain point, this offspring is going to be different enough from its mother that they won't be together, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And it's, I don't know, it's just a, like Aaron, ah, oh God, Claudia Black does such a good <laughs> job. I could tell him at Aaron forever. Yeah, pretty much. One of the other things, and the reason I left that little bit at the end of that conversation on, where John slides the recorder to Aaron and says, leave them a message to your parents. And I like that. It's not explicit in the episode, but thinking about it afterwards, it's like Moya has given her the opportunity to leave a message for her parents Mm -hmm. because she ends up naming the baby after her father because she does know his name. I just love the kind of the similarity of using the naming as a way to talk to her parents, even if they never hear her. It's a way for her to express back to them how much she appreciates the fact that they loved her at one point in their lives. Mm -hmm. And I think that the nice thing about, about Moya giving her the chance to name the offspring is that there's this element in it where we've talked about Moya the character before but in this episode it is so explicit that Moya is this giant creature that they just have no way of talking with early in the series they kind of made this comparison of like Moya being like a horse yeah but I would think that Moya is more like a giant whale where it's like intelligent enough to have its own language it's intelligent enough to communicate it's just that they don't understand her that only pilot understands her and I actually want to play another clip where it's during one of the endless goodbyes that happen in this episode but it's between Aaron and pilot and pilot kind of is also saying goodbye to Aaron on behalf of Moya a little bit. Yeah, this is very early in the episode when they're really convinced their plan is not going to work and that everything's going to go badly. Officer Soon. Aaron. You and I, we've shared quite a lot in the time we've been together. DNA for one. You've helped me learn some rudimentary science. You've kept me alive when no one else could. There's no reason we all need to be recaptured. You have your prowler. (laughs) Don't think that option hasn't entered my mind. I'm not going anywhere. Moya wants to know, have you come up with a name for her offspring yet, in case 
something happens. She doesn't want her son named by the peacekeepers. Please tell Moya that it remains my honor to name her son. It will be a good, strong name that he will bear proudly. In freedom, if I have anything to say about it. I cried during the scene. <laughs> Who doesn't? I don't know. I'm like crying now. Oh my like, god. Because uh... Aaron is trying to keep it together when she's talking with Pilot and she's crying and he's got this look on his face and oh my god, the two of them and their friendship and their relationship and they bring it up. They share DNA and they've shared this whole insecurity about science and they've figured out stuff together and they care about each other so much. And Aaron is still so honored that Moya's asking her to name the baby because I think it's another way to say Erin herself has value and is a valued person to Moya and Pilot in a way I don't necessarily think she she feels a lot of the time because she's a former peacekeeper but oh it breaks me every time I know it just gets me so much and also because it's because of the way she talks about Pilot and Moya and the offspring being free that's what gets me is like her kind of going from a place of like yeah whatever leviathans are you know we put control collars on them and we use them because they're pack animals to this place of like when you say you will be free or tell Moya she'll be free if I have anything to say about it you know and that means that like I will put myself on the line. I will put myself in between you and the peacekeepers. It's kind of like, yeah, it's like <laughs> band of brothers kind of thing of like, yeah. you know. And, and not uh, only that, but Moya and Pilot caring enough about Aaron that they're like, you should go away before you're caught too. We think we're going to get caught. We don't want you to be caught. You should just leave in your prowler. And she's like, no, I'm not abandoning you. And it's just this, oh, I'm tearing up again just thinking about it. I know. They want everything for each other, you know, all three of them. Mm -hmm. It's so good. It's It's so so good. good. Yeah. And actually, it kind of brings up the way that the others say goodbye. So one of the things that kind of brings up for me is, and we didn't get this clip, but I want to talk about it, is that Dargo, when they're kind of convinced that Moya will be caught, that they'll all be caught, Dargo is giving Chiana essentially handcuffs. He's like, put these on, lock yourself in a cell and tell them that we forced you to do this. And Chiana is throwing like a temper tantrum and being like, I'm not going to do that. They know my face. They know I was helping you willingly. I'm not going to pretend that I wasn't doing this of my own volition. And it's just this like really solid moment. Yeah. Dargo wants so badly to protect her as much as possible from being hunted like they were being punished and executed like they think they're going to be. My favorite moment of that is like, you are such a pain in the Ema is what he says to her when she's fighting him (laughs) on this. And then there's a pause and he's like, one I've grown fond of. And it's just, oh, this is again that moment of family connection, right? You have the bratty little sister who kind of is the role that Chiana's in right now. And everyone is like impatient with her. She doesn't do what they want her to do. And yet they love her anyway. And I just love that sentiment. And Chiana gets this kind of stunned look on her face that they feel that way about her because she hasn't been with them long. She knows she's been bratty and all those things. But that connection, she has become part of the crew and become important to them too. And I, I love that. Mm-hmm. It's really good. Yeah. And then later on when John and Dargo have gone off to do their, their essentially end run, <laughs> their suicide <laughs> mission, John comes to Aaron and they they have their kind of last conversation because she's going to the plan is that they'll go be on the pod, get Scorpius distracted, blow up the gamut base. And then but before they blow up the gamut base, they'll jump out of the pod. Yeah. <laughs> and Aaron will rush in with her prowler and save them. But at the same time. That plan actually is as ridiculous as it sounds. Yeah, and they all know it, too. Yeah, and they all know it. So John kind of has a last in-person conversation with Aaron. Part of them knowing about it, just to set up the scene, is Stan basically gives John and Dargo a blessing from her goddess, part of her priesthood. So there's this little ceremony. It's like a kamikaze ceremony of like the last, last blessing before you go to your deaths. That's how serious they know the situation is. And so they're walking out, and Aaron comes up to them. If you get this right, the peacekeepers will be so focused on the transport pod, they'll never notice the two of you. Zero margin for error. I'll be there. I can only last a quarter of I'll be there. I, uh, 
wasn't gonna say goodbye. Neither was I. Mm. And that's it. They they don't say goodbye to each other. They just have that that short little conversation because Aaron is so adamant that she's gonna save them that mm -hmm. she cannot bring herself to say goodbye to John. Well, and also I want to contrast it with Jelena because Jelena's point with John was like, we're always saying goodbye to each other. And that's kind of what made the relationship romantic to her mm -hmm. was that they were so star-crossed that they were always saying goodbye and they were never really together. And I think with Aaron, it's almost the opposite of like, she doesn't see them as star-crossed because she, their relationship is solid and real and it's not a fantasy. Mm -hmm. For her and John, it's like, we're not going to say goodbye because this is not the end. We're yeah. not going to say goodbye because we're not going to be separated. This relationship is not going to become a fantasy to me. Our relationship is grounded and true. Yeah. And I think Erin is also, you know, going back to her whole thing about dying alone and being alone. You know, she, she can't accept that she's going to lose the two most important crewmates that she has. And it's not just with John. I mean, her relationship with John is certainly a huge part of that, but also her relationship with Dargo. I'm going to play the last conversation she has with Dargo. It's a testament to how far they've come, because we've talked a lot about Aaron and Dargo's relationship throughout this season, and this is kind of one of the capstones to it. Dargo, there won't be much time later. I know. We've had our differences, but you've become someone I rely on now. I've become similarly affected. Sorry I didn't get a chance to meet your son, Jothy. I miss being a part of his life more and more each day. Your blood runs through him, Dargo. That's influence enough. I'm sure he's very much like you. Hopefully his mother's nose. <laughs> I thought I would live much longer. I never thought I'd live this long. Uh, can you imagine the two of them, from what we knew at the beginning of the season, getting to this place where they are not just telling each other how much they care about each other, but comforting each other when they think they're going to die? It's so good. It's so good. Yeah, it's they're comforting each other and they're and they're expressing this kind of deep fear that they each have where, where Dargo is like, I thought I would live much longer. And Aaron is like, I didn't realize, I, I didn't think I would live this long. And that just shows how vastly different their lives were. Yeah. I don't know, it kills me, I'm dead. And the second, I didn't clip this one, but there's, it's the second scene where Dargo has drawn the lots. It's not clear if he rigged the lots or not to be the one to take the suicide run. And she is so angry about it that he is the one who is going to be dying for them and that she cannot be the one to sacrifice but also that she's going to lose him and she comes into Zan and she kicks this thing across the floor and is, she's just full of this this anger that I think is born out of her fear and her not wanting him to die and not wanting mm -hmm. him to leave either as much as anyone else. And it's just that one also got me too. Oh, so good. But yeah, Aaron and Dargo have one of my favorite friendships on this show. And it's just, it's such a huge payoff in this episode to see the full, full realization of where they've come from to where they get to here. Yeah, and there's not even a lot you can add to it because it's all on screen, it's all verbal, it's all just these actors showing how far the characters have grown. Yeah, it's incredible character work. And I think you can also say something similar between John and Dargo, who even at mid-season, until the blood runs clear, were not friends. They were grudgingly allies, is how they put it. You know, I think we talked about it later on when they did become better friends. But here is kind of like the fruition of all of that. They're very much the buddy-buddy kind of friendship that we're going to get for the rest of rest of the show. I'm going to go back to a scene that plays really early in the episode when they realize that Rigel has gone off to Brichet them and that their time is severely limited. Here's the little interplay between John and Dargo and Aaron too. We, we can use the offspring's weaponry to our advantage. Well, against a command carrier, until he's fully grown, it'll be like throwing well, stones. I can tell you this for free. I will not be taken alive. I've been in the goddamn chair and I am not going back in it. I know of the concept, but there is no Luxon word for it. Suicide? I am not talking about suicide. But it doesn't look like we're going to get out of this one. And if we're going to go down, I want to go down swinging. Then we shall do so together. Ah, oh, just to be in the warm glow of all this testosterone. <laughs> <laughs> 
but you have them, you know, this is their declaration of we're going to go out with a fight and both of them are on the same page. They're going to do it. They're going to be all, you know, they're doing the very man thing of like, oh, we're going to fight our way out. It's not suicide, even though, you know, they kind of know that it is. And Aaron is like just as much with them as a warrior and a fighter and wanting to go out fighting. But she still has this take on it. It's like, ugh, posturing. <laughs> <laughs> I just love Aaron in that scene where like she's so much more of like an actual fighter than John is. Yeah. Because even at this point he's carrying around a weapon. He is not like a warrior though. He's still no. just John with a gun. And Aaron is kind of like, oh my God, stop it. Stop it with like the, you know, rooster puffing <laughs> out his feathers and like stomping around. Oh, I love Aaron. Yeah. And I also want to talk about one more scene before we kind of wrap it up with like the end run and everything we've got going on there, which is that so Chiana and John have always kind of had this interesting relationship because Chiana thinks that John saved her. Not in, not necessarily incorrectly, because mm. I don't know that anybody else would have given her a chance on the ship. But after they've drawn lots and they know that it's going to be John and Dargo going on the suicide run, Chiana kind of comes to him and they have this conversation and she's super clearly offering him sex. Yeah. And he he actually kind of pushes her away. And it, it made me wonder, do you think that really the only way that Chiana knows how to express emotion is through sex? I think that's a large part of it because she's been on her own. She's been, you know, kicking her way through the universe and the thing she has to sell and the thing that she knows has value in herself is sex. Like that's something she can give other people because otherwise she has nothing. And I think in a warped way, that's, that's something that she can give other people that has value. And it's not just her emotions don't have value to other people, clearly. I mean, that's not the frame of mind that she's in. So I think, yeah, I think that's what she thinks about it. And John does kiss her. And it's this kind of very sweet little little kiss. And then he pulls away. And it, he's very good with her, you know. They have this moment where their foreheads are touching, too. And it's very intimate. You know, you definitely see, see their relationship kind of wrapped up there as... And he tells her to pay his saving her life forward. You know, I saved your life. I'm not going to be here to pay back. So you give it to someone else. Yeah, I, I did. I really just loved that moment. Me too. And then Shiana kind of figures it out after how she can show how much she cares about everyone by cooking them food. She makes this really great dinner for everybody with whatever supplies they have left. And uh, it's everyone's favorite foods, giving them something that they can have pleasure from for the last time bef before they go off on the suicide run. Yeah. It's very sweet. It's so sweet. And it actually, during this kind of family meal that they're having, that, that sense of community and that sense of joy with each other's presence is what gives John the strength to, to finish off his letter to his father. Yeah. So then after the ceremony where Zan blesses them and Aaron refuses to say goodbye... John and Dargo kind of have another, not necessarily like male <laughs> posture -y thing, but it is super insightful. And I was kind of like, Dargo, when did you get yeah. so smart conversation? Well, because John is talking about how he's not really afraid of what they're about to do. Crashed collision course for the Frelling Moon. It's time we got out of here. Hey, Dargo. How come I'm not afraid? Fear accompanies the possibility of death. Calm shepherds its certainty. I love hanging with you, man. My dad's good luck charm. Does it work? I'm alive. So far. It feels like Dargo has grown up so much over the course of this season because the last couple episodes he's had good ideas, he's reassuring to other people, he's figured out how to care about other people out, you know, in this little circle that they have. And I love this moment between him and John when John is just like, this is it, and I'm not afraid. And, you know, it's like a proverb mm -hmm. <laughs> that Dargo comes up with here. The most touching part when when John gives him his dad's good luck charm. Mm -hmm. I know it's so good, and it's it's like such a solid place to end the season. You know, is on this mm -hmm. idea of of John not afraid of his own death. You know, of John not afraid of not yeah. going back home, and of Dargo becoming the wise warrior that I think he always wanted to be. Mm -hmm. Of Dargo really coming into his own. So yeah, it's good. Yeah, I'm gonna tear up again. <laughs> so it ends with them blowing up the gamut base and Scorpius is frustrated and angry because Scorpius has chased them but now Scorpius is coming back mm -hmm. to the ship and <laughs> <laughs> 
Crease, who Aaron showed the ship earlier to, to kind of be like, can we use Talon as any sort of, you know, defense? And he was like, nah, this would be like throwing pebbles Mm -hmm. at the command carrier. But (laughs) Crease, who realizes he's never going to fit in with Moya and that he, his own days are limited, has gone on Talon and convinced Talon to leave Moya. Yes. And so now Talon is somewhere deeper in the asteroid field where Moya can't chase him because she's too big. And Moya is refusing to starburst away because she doesn't want to leave her offspring. Mm-hmm. And the command carrier is coming back. So it kind of comes down to this like momentary decision. And the kind of the tension that had been boiling for the whole episode, this is when it yeah. this is when it boils over. And at the same time, you have John and Dargo who are now floating in space. And Dargo is without a spacesuit because he can survive for a quarter of an arm. Aaron's out in her prowler trying to find a moment when she can swing in and pick them up and save them. And you have Chiana and Zan and Rigel not wanting to leave them while they're outside. So there's nobody wants to leave each other and it's like no we can't go no we can't go we can't do any of this and that's when Crace has taken Talon Mm -hmm. and so we end up with John begging Moya essentially to starburst because he wants to save it's a triage situation where he wants to save as many as much of his family as he possibly can Moya listen to me we know how much you care about your baby we feel the same way That's why we've gone to all this trouble. It's not just to save ourselves, but to save you and him. Your only chance of rescuing him is to save yourself first. Maya, thanks for everything. Now do what you have to do. Mm. Pleading with her to leave so that they can their sacrifice won't be in vain and that they can get her away and they can get Rigel and Zan and Chiana away. So heartbreaking because none of them want to leave. Even Rigel is like, no, we're not going to leave you. And it's so, so intense. I know. Ugh, it's so good. But it's, it's like if John wasn't afraid before because he knew that his death would have meaning. Do you know what I mean? Like he knew that his death would result mm-hmm. in saving Moya, saving those left on Moya, saving Pilot. And saving, at that point, they thought they were also saving Talon. It's kind of, if Moya doesn't leave, it makes his death meaningless. Yeah. And it means that he's dying alone in space. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, we have Aaron's own, like, mini character arc that happened over the past couple episodes also coming to fruition. And any resolution she had felt with Chris has faded She's told Moya to try calling Talon by his name, announcing his name. But Chris has control of Talon by some strange quirk you survive your current situation and we managed to encounter each other again i hope that our relationship away from the peacekeepers will be a much different one next time you cannot take a child from its mother you forget it was done to me and it was done to you goodbye officer son no aaron's voice when she says you can't take a child from his mother Oh my god, it's just, it's so intense, and it's like the ball of feelings that is wrapped up in that sentence, because it's what she missed out on, and that she knows finally, having been on Moya and meeting John and understanding his relationship with his father, and understanding Moya's relationship with Talon, she knows in her heart that this is the worst thing that can possibly happen, and it's heartbreaking. And I think especially because she has come so much to empathize with Talon, where Talon has kind of represented her second chance. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, because if she sees herself in Talon, then she kind of sees that she could be different. Or, like, her own future offspring could be different. That she could raise them in the way that Moya wants to raise Talon. That your birth doesn't have to determine your life course. Right. And then you have Crace saying, hey, it's no problem. That's what was done to me. That's what was done to you. That's the lot of a peacekeeper child is to lose their family. And not quite getting the depth of emotion that Aaron gets about it, that this is not a good outcome. Like, you are, you are doing something terrible to a baby. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. And so that's it. It ends on John and Dargo framed by an explosion. Yeah, and Moya starbursts away. 
and Crace has taken Talon, and Aaron's in her prowler all by herself, and this beautiful family that we have seen come together over this season, and who have finally like really gelled and love each other, despite all their flaws, is now broken up. Mm-hmm. It's a hell of a cliffhanger. Really good cliffhanger. Really quickly in Wardrobe Watch, Zan is wearing like this gold corset thing, and that's the only mm-hmm. wardrobe change we noticed. It's the only new, <laughs> yeah. So, what would you give this episode? Oh, like a seven? (laughs) (laughs) Our five-point scale, it's like a ten. I don't know. It's... I had forgotten how good this episode is, and it's because of the emotional beats. Like, I was crying for, like, half this episode, and I haven't done that with any of the other ones, even as much as I love them. Like, Through the Looking Grass, I think I said, was my favorite of the season one, and it's true. It's one of my absolute favorites. But I think this one actually might be the favorite. It's just incredible. Yeah. What about you? Uh, yeah. I mean, I would definitely give this a super solid five. I think it's well-deserved. Yeah. I think they worked really hard for it. I mean, it's it's a good, strong episode to end on. And an incredible finale. Yeah, right? I mean, I think that this isn't the sort of finale where, like, if you came in on the last episode of season one, you'd be like, oh, okay, I definitely need to watch season two because it just has, it has so much continuity. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, you can't watch this episode in isolation. No, you really can't. But that's the payoff of it. It hinges on the continuity and it makes it that much better because of it. Mm -hmm. All right, well, we will see you next week. We'll have our season one wrap-up episode and then it's off to season two. Have a good week, everybody. Bye. Bye.